0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, PHP Mailer puts almost every CMS based on PHP at risk, the fancy Bear Android malware that has a complicated past, and the new botnet that likes to brag. Plus your great questions, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 299 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on December 29th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three sponsors: Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our downloads and our live stream, it's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Go check it out over at ScaleEngine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello,
1: Chris. Everybody,
0: Thanks hello, sir. Hello. Hey, that's a that's a nice tech snap shirt you got on there, Alan. <laughs> you must have been preparing yourself for a big show. But you know, after a lot of popular re- demand, request, whatever you want to call it, uh, I got one to upgrade you. I got one to one up that shirt uh-huh. right there. Look out! The patch your S-shirt is being relaunched, Alan. Right here, I'm going to say it right here at there the top go. because people have been asking for weeks. Teespring.com slash patch your shit. That's where you go to get it. Now, this is this is kind of a big deal because not only is it, a, is it an update of the classic artwork, and this is a message of our times. This is something that people need to know about. And so if a shirt or a hoodie is not powerful enough, you can also now pick up a patch your shit sticker and – Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time ever, a patch your shit tote bag. (laughs) A frickin' tote bag, Alan. A tote bag. Now, that's that's probably one of the most important pieces of merchandise in the entire year. So go to teespring.com slash patch your shit. Now, they're making the sticker. It's not like one of our, I don't know if it's a vinyl sticker or what, because it's coming from Teespring. But (laughs) it's three bucks. How cool is that? So you could like, I don't know, spread the word. There you go, guys. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. Look at that. Chat room is happy. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's finally, finally here, and it really is sort of the theme of 300 episodes. Please, mm-hmm. everybody, just go patch your s, so you can grab the new merch. Teespring.com/patchership. It's a great way to say goodbye as uh, we get near episode 300, and then we'll be handing it over to a new fresh blood. Wes and Dan will take the reins and do a great job with the TechSnap program. Teespring.com slash shit. And, Alan, I think uh, – what do you think of the updated graphics? I think it looks pretty good. I like the the ho- the, the headphones have been replaced with horns because, obviously, you, uh, you wear uh, more video-appropriate headphones these days. Although you still have those classics. They're still around.
1: Well, yes, I still have them. So use them all they're the time favorite. except for the show now.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah, because they're a favorite. But the horns are a pretty good, pretty good replacement. That's pretty good. Yes, I, I do wear. The horns sort of, pa- it sort of pays homage to the old headphones, which I thought was a was a good call. Yeah. <laughs> you have, after all, turned into a bit of a FreeBSD uh, fan. I would say
1: over the years. Oh, always have been. But yes, it's, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So you guys can check it out, and uh, well, I'm sure we'll have a link on the, in the show notes too for it. If you guys want, and there's lots of colors. Don't forget, including uh, I like the blue a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that looks really nice. Uh, although I'm probably going to want red and also the uh, the dark the darker gray. I think that. Uh,
1: yes, nice. the uh, um, the lighter gray is the one I'm going to go for. I yeah, think. yeah, similar to this one. Yeah, I just like that color. Yeah, I like all of them actually.
0: 14 days left. I should probably mention that it's going to be available until January 13th. That's probably mm-hmm. I probably should have probably should have mentioned that earlier. So you can check it out, uh, and go get it. Teespring.com slash patchyourship. Spread the word to the people, because it's all that's going to save us after the Internet of Things revolutionizes everything. So, Alan.
1: Well, it doesn't have to be something new, like the Internet of Things. We can have just as many problems with the same things we've been using for the last 15 years. No kidding. In fact, we find that to be the case quite often, don't we? So, what's going on? (laughs) Uh, Well, so, yes. So, uh, I heard you like to patch your shit. So, how about you patch your shit after you patch your shit? (laughs) Uh, An exploit for PHP Mailer uh, has come out, and it turns out that it puts at risk almost every PHP-based content management system uh, out on the internet. Oh. Uh, So PHP Mailer continues to be the world's most popular transport class with an estimated 9 million users worldwide. Downloads continue at a significant pace daily. Probably the world's most popular code for sending email using PHP is used by many open source projects, including WordPress, Drupal, OneCRM, SugarCRM, Joomla, and many, many more. Uh, so even if you don't think you're running PHP Mailer, you're probably running PHP Mailer. Yeah. Um, an independent researcher uncovered a critical vulnerability in PHP Mailer that could potentially be used by an unauthenticated remote attacker, meaning they don't have to log in your website or anything to do it. They can just show up and do it um, to achieve arbitrary remote code execution in the context of the web server user and remotely compromise the target web application. So uh, using this, they can, as the web server, uh, run any code that they provide uh, on your machine which would be bad. Yeah. Uh, then if you combine that with something like dirty cow or one of these other vulnerabilities that exactly. exists on Linux, you could then escalate that from running as the web server user to running as root right. and then take over the whole machine. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. But even without needing a Linux vulnerability, if you you know, can run code as the web server user, which is the user for say WordPress, Drupal, Joomla, etc., you could say implant uh, viruses, and so on, into the web page. So add an iframe into this web page that lots of people visit uh, that will then send them to random exploit kit and infect their machine. <laughs> what could go wrong? Or give them ransomware, or whatever you want to do, really. Ooh, I like that um, <clears throat> So yeah. Uh, to exploit the vulnerability, an attacker could target common website components such as contact or feedback forms, registration forms, uh, password email resets, uh, that send out emails or any, anything else that basically sends out an email via a vulnerable version of PHP Mailer. And the business impact is a successful exploitation could let remote attackers gain access to the target web server in the context of the web server account, which could lead to full compromise of the web application. For example, if I'm running as the user that WordPress runs as, I can easily uh, look at the config files and get the username and password for the database and then go into the database and get all the posts, all the users, their Mm -hmm. email addresses, their hash passwords, et cetera, and then do whatever I want with them. Uh, Plus make changes to the website and so on and so on. Uh, So yeah, really bad. Uh, So when the mailer uh, software calls the system sendmail binary to actually send an email, it can optionally pass additional parameters to sendmail, like the minus F flag to override the from address, right? That's pretty standard. Mm-hmm. However, uh, proper input validation is not performed on this input. They thought it was, but they were actually doing it wrong.
0: Oh, So, okay.
1: <laughs> uh, <clears throat> instead of the content being restricted based on what's safe to actually pass to a shell to be executed, they were doing input validation to uh, via RFC 3696 to ensure what was being fed there was an actual email address, a valid email address. Uh So they were checking against RFC 3696 to make sure that the from address they were trying to send to SendMail was a valid actual email address. Uh, Which you think that makes sense, right? If it's an email address, then it'll be fine. The problem is RFC uh, 3696 allows for usernames in the the user part of the email address before the ad Mm -hmm. to be quoted and have things like spaces in it. Oh. That's not what you want to be. I've passing never really to the come shelves. across that. Uh, yeah, it's it's not often used, but it it can be. Hmm. You know, hmm. you, you could actually have it's people's supports, email though. address be just their name with the spaces and everything. Hmm. Or it's also you know if if people have weird symbols or something in their name and.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. to see
1: kind of allowed
0: for anything, which was a little ridiculous. You don't see it much, but uh, so I guess, it, but yeah. you never know. And especially if you're doing, if you're a mailer application, uh, <laughs> you got to kind of accommodate yeah. those things.
1: The problem is that, you know, I could then set my email address to be, you know, quote, attacker uh, slash quote. So that quote doesn't count as a quote, an email address. It's a literal quote. And then a bunch of other stuff, blah, and then a closing quote at email.com. Um, And now all of that goes out to the shell, where it then gets interpreted differently uh, than what a normal email does. So if the attacker goes to your website, uh, and in the email address box on the, say, the contact form, they put in this string, which was, quote, attacker, and then an escape, quote, space, minus O, capital Q, slash TMP, uh, space, minus X var www cache php uh space sum uh quote com. so if you scroll down a little bit you can see that uh example uh, a little bit further
0: oh this guy right here okay right here uh,
1: right
0: read yep, right further down whoa Alan. whoa ah this guy
1: yeah so okay Yeah, uh, email from right there. See it? Yep. Email I see. from and email body. So if they just filled out the form with those values, uh, then what's going to happen is mm. it's going to call send mail with, you know, from attacker or whatever. And it's also going to set uh, that all the uh, a, a transaction copy of the email that's going to be sent is going to be written to this file var www.phpcode.php. <coughs> hmm this is a directory that the web server user has access to write to because it's where WordPress will keep its cache of Uh, generated pages so it doesn't have to use the database. That makes sense. So now, uh, because of the way the code in uh, PHP Mailer works, what actually gets executed is sendmail minus T minus I uh, minus F attacker slash, then minus O, that path, minus X, the other path, and then this random email address with a single quote in it. Um, <clears throat> so now the attacker, and then as part of the body, if they inject some PHP code, then in the transaction copy that gets written to this PHP file, mm-hmm. it'll be an entire copy of the email, which would be a bunch of gibberish plain text, but in the middle, a block of PHP code. Well, the way PHP was designed is you can embed it in an HTML page, but you can also embed it in anything as long as it's .php, and that gets parsed by the... Uh, the web server and basically all the plain text gets printed out verbatim, but right. the code gets executed. Mm-hmm. So now the attacker just has to go to that access that PHP code.php in the cache directory, uh, and it will then the web server will run that code and do whatever the code says to do, which could be you know exploit a vulnerability like dirty cow to compromise uh, to escalate to root access on the Linux machine. So, Hmm. just because of that little bit of, uh, you know, because they validated the input, but they validated that it was an email address, not that it was safe to send out to a shell, uh, that causes the problem. Right. So, this vulnerability was responsibly disclosed to the PHP mailer vendor. Uh, The vendor released a critical security update, PHP mailer 5.2.18, to fix the issue. Uh, And so, they worked around the issue a bit. Uh, But then update yesterday, the author of the original uh, vulnerability posted an update where he has actually worked a way to bypass the fix. So while people rushed out and patched their PHP mailer to fix this vulnerability, uh, the author of the vulnerability managed to work around the fix and still be able to exploit all of them. Oh, Alan, uh, no. So PHP no. Mailer has had to release version <laughs> 5.2.20 <laughs> uh, that fixes the exploit better. Uh, so what it does now, uh, instead of trying to escape whatever the user sends in, it checks that uh, before and after the escaping, the strings are the same. So if you put in anything that's going to require a bunch of extra escaping, then it just says, no, that's obviously not just a simple email address uh, and punts on it. Uh, so this way... We know that what's being passed can only be straight characters and nothing hmm. that will require any work. And then he didn't stop there. Uh, he's like, well, if this PHP mail sending application has this problem, how much you want to bet almost all the other ones do too? Oh, boy. So he looked at Swift Mailer and immediately found the vulnerability existed there as well.
0: <laughs> Surprise! Yep, <clears> that was good insight. I don't know if I would have naturally come to that conclusion, so that was a good, that was a good insight.
1: Yep, injecting extra stuff to the command line is, uh, you know, this is exactly the same way that uh, it's the same type of exploit as the one we saw against the WordPress auto-update mechanism. Remember when we talked about that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it was just causing it to run your string as, at the command line, and then you could take over the machine. Mm-hmm. It's a classic. It's a classic. But yeah, as you can see, once we find this vulnerability, we also need to look at all related things, because they probably have, you know, it's a common mistake.
0: Yeah, that that is very
1: true. Interesting,
0: and uh, sounds like it affects a lot of PHP applications, especially ones that are like CMSs, or ones that maybe companies have used internally to generate reports. So as we like to say,
1: patch your S. And then after you're done, make sure you've actually patched to the latest patch, because the The last patch, no good. good (laughs) The last patch. The uh, w- 18 that everybody rushed out and installed before yeah. Christmas turns out, as of yesterday, not good enough.
0: Yeah, that old me, that, you know what that would have meant for old me? Old me would have been like, oh my God, I have to write another change control request form for an obvious thing I need to fix immediately. And I have to wait till next Thursday when we have the meeting where I can schedule the installation. I hate this when it's back to back like that. It's such a pain in the butt for certain types of businesses, it is a major amount of work for the IT department. Uh, All right, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? (laughs) Uh, Nope. I just dumped on it like that? All right, well, let's talk about something awesome, and that's our first sponsor this week, DigitalOcean. Use our promo code SNAPOcean after you create your account. You just apply it to your balance, and you get a $10 credit. And I love this, because DigitalOcean has incredible pricing, and it's easy to set up a system and get going in under 55 seconds. All All of their machines use SSDs, so you get great performance. They have lightning fast networking. And they have very straightforward pricing. So uh, they have a $5 a month rig, which gets you 512 megabytes of RAM, one core, 20 gigabytes of SSD, and a terabyte transfer. They also have one, this has kind of been my go-to for things that are a little heavier, like Minecraft, and I've also done this now for my next cloud instance, is I'm going with $20 a month, and it's just an unbelievable value. Two gigs of RAM, two core processor, 40 gigabyte SSD, three terabytes of transfer, but it's just, you know, with the 40 gigabyte E-connections coming to the hypervisor, it's just so amazingly fast. An hourly is even just, barely can wrap my head around it great. Three cents an hour to run that rig. Imagine like the latest open source project you want to test out or something like that. Run it for a couple of hours. You could probably even get lucky and deploy it within seconds either using something set up on DigitalOcean's dashboard that allows you just one click deploy or one of the hundreds and hundreds of great documents in their uh, community documentation section. In fact, uh, this is kind of a cool tool that we should probably talk about more because I think it's probably right up the alley of our audience, the DOCTL application, which is the official DigitalOcean command line client that uses that API. And I'm I'm pretty sure their own web interface, which is super nice and slick, it must be using their API in the back end because everything you can do in the web UI, you can do via the API. And that is so handy once you start using DigitalOcean for a long time. You're just getting started. The web interface is great for that. Even if you're like a long-time server expert or a... Total, con- just completely beginner noob type person. The dashboard's great for you, so use our promo code SnapOcean. Go spin up a rig. They have free BSD and Linux systems you can get going with. With that intuitive control panel, straightforward pricing, lots of good documentation, the ability to do snapshots and block storage, and data centers all over the world. DigitalOcean.com. Start the new year off with a DigitalOcean droplet. Ah, they can, they can, they can take that. I just made that up right there on the spot. You can run with a DigitalOcean. I'll give it to you. Merry Christmas. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. Just apply it to your account. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So are we uh, are we going to talk about uh, Fancy Bear today, Mr. Jude? Sure. Let's do it. I, I'm loving the artwork on this report from CrowdStrike. <laughs> That's some good
1: stuff. Well, I think um, there's quite a bit of... of work that went into making this report fancy, but
0: including Uh, the
1: the actual content is interesting, if not slightly oversold by the artwork and the, I don't know the amount of hype they put into it. But anyway, um, starting from late 2014 through 2016, uh, fancy bear, which is a variant of the X agent implant for cell phones, uh, was covertly distributed to Ukrainian military forums, uh, Bundled within a legitimate Android application developed by a member of the Ukrainian artillery uh, officer Yaroslav Shurstok. Uh It was developed by the Ukrainian army. Uh, so just some guy who's uh, an officer in the Ukrainian artillery. Some guy. Uh, I mean, basically, yeah. He, well, he, okay. So uh, the that's Ukrainians weird. have these old Soviet-era D-30 howitzers, hmm. and to do the Figuring to target them takes like a couple of minutes of math. Uh, so he wrote a cell phone app that does it in about 15 seconds, <laughs> and uh, started distributing that via a forum used by people in the Ukrainian artillery. Huh. Right. So this is yes, this is just an officer be like, hey, I've made a computer program that can calculate the stuff for us much faster. Let's all use that. So, the original application enabled artillery forces to more rapidly process targeting data for the Soviet-era D-30 howitzers, which are employed by the Ukrainian artillery forces, uh, reducing targeting time from multiple minutes to under 15 seconds. According to uh, Sherstuk's interview with the press, over 9,000 artillery personnel have been using this application in the Ukrainian military. Um, So, they say the successful deployment of the Fancy Bear malware within this application... Uh, may have facilitated reconnaissance against Ukrainian troops. The ability for this malware to retrieve communications and gross locational data from an infected device makes it an attractive way to identify the general location of Ukrainian artillery forces and engage them. They say, open source uh, reporting indicates that Ukrainian artillery forces have lost more than 50% of their weapons in the two years of conflict and over 80% of their D-30 howitzers. The highest percentage loss of any other uh, Hmm. Artillery piece in Ukraine's arsenal is
0: the implication there that this uh, great loss is due to malware. Is that the implication?
1: Uh, well, the implication is the Russians and uh, the Russian-backed uh, separatist forces were better able to target the artillery because all the people, all, all, a lot of the troops, had this malware on their phones. I so, so they could. It's like, well, they're all over there and they're coming this way. Uh, so,
0: what is? What do you suppose they mean by open-source reporting? Does that mean they're sourcing Twitter? It just means
1: like public yeah so basically well not not necessarily twitter but just anything that you know reports the ukrainian military puts out saying you know uh or there's basically anything that's public information
0: so but the thing is, is the ukrainian military doesn't put that information out because they're at war they don't put that out so i'm wondering open source reporting is just a weird term it's just a, i wish i knew what it meant that's
1: well it. uh it's a it's not a weird term. It's. it's I think it's a, weird. I know it's, it's something It's a regular used. term used in intelligence for anything that's yeah, not secret.
0: We've co- We've talked about it. We've had the same conversation like once before on the show.
1: Yes, but the open source reporting in this case could literally mean anything where it's like magazine publishes, Jane's Defense, anything that yeah. is public information that people can get.
0: It's just vague, I, I guess. I wish I knew yeah. more where they got that information from because
1: that would be uh, – Well, that'd... I think if you actually look in the PDF, they cite where they got the information from oh. with the link at the bottom. <laughs> I'll dig for that You'll see a little number at the end of the information and on the last page it resolves to a link. I'll (laughs) I'll look at it, yeah. uh, But basically, uh, more of their D30 howitzers got lost than any other artillery piece and only people with D30s were using this app, so maybe there's a correlation. Mm -hmm. Uh, This previously unseen variant of the X-Agent, which they call Fancy Bear, uh, represents its expansion into mobile malware... uh, Going, moving from just iOS specifically to also targeting Android devices because that's what uh, everybody in the Ukraine was using in this case, and it reveals one or more uh, or one more component in the broad spectrum approach to cyber operations uh, taken by the Russian-based actors in the war in the Ukraine. Uh, the collection of such tactical artillery forces positioning intelligence by Fancy Bear further supports CrowdStrike's previous assessment that Fancy Bear is likely affiliated with the Russian Military Intelligence, or GRU, and works closely with uh, Russian military forces operating in eastern Ukraine and on the border regions with Russia. <clears throat> so the original application, uh, central to this discussion, was uh, called Bunch of Russian Characters 30. dot <laughs> .apk. Uh, yeah, .apk, uh, was originally developed uh, domestically used, uh, within the Ukraine by members of the 55th Artillery Brigade. Based on the file creation timestamps as well as the app signing process, which occurred on uh, March 28th, 2013, CrowdStack has determined that the app was developed sometime between February and April of 2013. Uh, dist- uh, it was distributed via forums and via uh, VContact, which is basically a Russian-ish language version of Facebook. Um And was popularized through social media under the name that translates to correction D30, right? Because that's what you call the numbers you type into the artillery to make them fire at a certain place. Hmm. And described as modern combat software. Uh, As an additional control measure, the program is only activated for use after the developer has contacted and issued a code to each individual download of the application. So as a security feature in this app, even once you get the APK you have to get an individual activation code from the guy that made the software so that this software couldn't just be used by anybody. Mm. Um, but at the time of this writing, it is unclear uh, to what degree and how long this specific application was utilized by the entirety of the Ukrainian artillery forces. Based on open source reporting, social media posts, and video evidence, CrowdStrike assessments that this APK uh, was potentially used uh, all the way up to 2016 by at least one artillery unit operating in eastern Ukraine uh, there's apparently an actual like a video they I think they link in here somewhere of them actually using it to fire the artillery uh, the use of the X agent implant uh, in the original apK uh, appears to be uh, first observed uh, in December of 2014 uh, with the malicious variants of the Android application uh, was first observed in limited public distribution on Russian language Ukrainian military forums. So uh, while the app came out in early 2013, it was in very late 2014 where basically uh, a version of the APK that had been implanted with the virus uh, started being distributed as well. <clears throat> Uh, The creation of an application that targets some of the frontline forces pivotal to Ukraine's defense on the Eastern Front would likely be a high priority for Russian adversary malware developers seeking to turn the tide of the conflict in their favor. They say, although traditional overhead intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, or ISR, assets were likely still needed to finalize tactical movements, the ability of this application to retrieve communications and gross locational data from affected devices Could provide insight for further planning, coordination, and tasking for ISR artillery assets and fighting forces. Hmm. So basically, while the Russians would still use uh, drones to actually target their attacks from airplanes and artillery to destroy the Ukrainian artillery, um, having the gross locational data from all these infected cell phones could tell them where to send the drones to find the artillery, right? rather yeah. than having to fly around and hope to find it.
0: And and according to this timeline, they started development on this potentially well before there was even an armed conflict. So they were sort of perhaps preemptively expecting things to go south, committed resources to it a couple of years before there was a conflict. And then when the conflict happened, they had the software created. Right.
1: Although that band is very wide because they don't know that that actually happened. It was sometime between here and here is when they developed it. Oh, okay. But, yes, the application they were targeting existed that early, so it's, it's entirely possible. Um, but, yes, it, it kind of brings a new meaning to counter-battery fire. So, normally what happens is when you have artillery is they have – basically, they use radars and detect the incoming shells. And from that, they can do the math backwards and figure out where the artillery is shooting from. So, you know, when the one side's artillery is shooting at the other side's tanks uh, that are trying to come in or whatever or troops uh, – the, others, the first, second side's artillery can now see, uh, by doing the math from the radar uh, reflections off the incoming shells, know where the enemy artillery is and do counter-battery fire, and basically shoot their artillery at the first side's artillery. Um, but you can do that while they're still setting up if you uh, have you know, drones and, and this locational data to actually know where they are and when they're, say, using the app, uh... to to do the calculations. Although uh, they point out that the app actually does more than that. Um, The x agent Android variant does not exhibit a destructive function and does not interfere with the function of the original application. Because, you know, one of the obvious things to do is make all the targeting information generated by the app wrong, right? Mm. You know, it's like, every time we fire our artillery, we end up over there instead (laughs) of where we're aiming. (laughs) Anyway, therefore, CrowdStrike Intelligence has assessed that its likely role of this malware is strategic in nature. Uh, the capabilities of this malware include gaining access to all the contacts in the phone, uh, the SMS text messages, call logs, internet data, and other things. And Fancy Bear would likely leverage this information in its intelligence and uh, planning value. So, you know, if instructions are passed that way, or if, um, you know, you're just, you're, other people in your squad or your, you know, the entire organizational structure of your unit could be in the contacts list on your phone. So getting all that information could be interesting.
0: Hmm.
1: Or, you know, once you figure out, based on the context of these people's phones, that this guy is the, the, you know, commanding officer of this group, you know, if he's not around, they're probably not going to be shooting. But if he's moving there, you know, they're probably getting ready to do something, right? And all the other data that they could put together from this. Uh, CrowdStrike Intelligence... Uh, assesses a tool such as this has the potential ability to map out a unit's uh, composition and hierarchy, determine their plans, and even triangulate their approximate location. This type of uh, strategic analysis can enable the identification of zones in which troops are operating, and help prioritize assets within these zones for further targeting. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: in some ways, it would almost be malpractice if the Russians didn't do this. Like, I would imagine we do this to some degree, too, with the NSA. If yeah, right, um, the capabilities are there and you're not taking advantage of it, then it's, in, in, depending on your perspective, it would be negligence, right?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is just, you know, um, in our more Western view of things, we don't really picture our troops as having their cell phones on them because they're deployed in some foreign country. But in this case, the Ukrainians are on their home country. And so, sure, they maybe have their cell phones with them sure. all the time. Yeah, uh, But, you know, there's a lot of security risk in having, you know, bring your own device to work. Mm-hmm. It really uh, is completely different when you start talking about the military as far as having these unsecured devices hanging around that can be turned into uh, spying apparatuses and, and tracking stuff and
0: so, it so it was developed by a Ukrainian person in the Ukrainian army, but on his own initiative, but then yes. taken so over by Russia to use against... Uh, not necessarily taken over, just took a version of it, it implanted was... it with
1: a virus, and started spreading it via social media. I see. So
0: and And this guy in the Ukrainian army started developing it back in 2013.
1: Yes. So, he made it in 2013, and it's basically just a calculator that does the math for... You but know, in 2013, here, you want to shoot here these are the numbers you type into the artillery.
0: In 2013, there hadn't been a popular uprising; the government hadn't been overthrown, right. well, and Russia it, and Ukraine were allies.
1: Yeah, like uh, you know, so you if, can. See, I mean, if if but actually, my point is, you can see how they can get their hands on is it. Is to do this math all the time, and if you can do it in 15 seconds on your phone instead of yeah, you know, two minutes. On the Soviet-era computer that's built into the artillery, yeah, then you're going to do that.
0: No, my point was you could uh, see because they were partners at the time, it would be probably feasible that Russia could get their hands on it. I mean, they were allies.
1: Right? Yeah. Uh, well, in this case, you know, uh, there was, it was an APK they were posting on social media, so anybody could download it. Oh, I see. Just, you wouldn't be able to use the, you wouldn't be able to use the software unless uh, you had this you know code to start using to unlock it. But if you're the type of developer that writes malware like Fancy Bear, you can probably deconstruct somebody's basic math app. Uh, And In this case, they didn't really need to. They just took it and bundled it again with the virus stuck in there and started distributing that one. So the real problem here is that because it was just this homegrown grassroots app, it didn't have a secure distribution mechanism, right? It was just being spread by, oh, I posted it on a forum and on basically the Ukrainian equivalent of Facebook. Uh, and so it kind of got spread. And so it was easy enough for someone to make a, a, an effective version of it and spread it by the same means, yeah. and the people downloading it didn't know the difference. Isn't it? Isn't it so
0: interesting now? Software can be made by a Ukrainian soldier in 2013, gets posted online, and now really anyone could find it and download it and use it.
1: Well, uh, using it, not supposed to be, because the activation code system he built okay. for it. Okay,
0: okay. But you, but but take this particular instance of just say you know the concept right. Uh, I think it makes attribution even more challenging in some senses because because once it's posted on social media, it the the, the attribution to using the things like time zone uh, when it was signed, uh, the fact that like one of the things in the report is they they could see also the developers observed uh, Russian holidays. And, and this is a different report. You know those things are often cited. Uh, but it's more challenging when the software was just generally available online because it's, it's, it's harder to use that as attribution evidence when well, it doesn't the, mean the creator is the same person uh, that was the user. The,
1: the, the Fancy Bear stuff didn't actually change the original software from 2013. They just rebundled it with the virus included.
0: Oh, I'm, not, I'm just saying in general. Like, yeah. This is just, like, seems like it's going to be a big challenge going forward because a lot of the stuff's just available online.
1: Yeah, uh, but in this particular case, <laughs> it was uh, the Fancy Bear implant is the part that's not really generally available. Yeah, you know, the source code for that and, and
0: CrowdStrike is more, on a beat.
1: The the uh, conclusions they're drawing from it are based on uh, the all the different places Fancy Bear is used and how it's used and when it's used and they all seem to be in pro-Russian circumstances and so on. But yes, then they have this one here uh, that you're showing. This is where uh, the question was: Why is this distributed on Russian language forums? And it's like, well, it turns out that. You know, most of the war is happening in the eastern part of Ukraine, and uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine, most people speak Russian. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, like what twenty five percent plus thirty four percent speak Russian or Russian and Ukraine equally, and they even observe Russian holidays and all that. Yeah,
0: it's yeah. <clears throat> they were they had a, they had a culture that was connected for really. I mean, they're connected. It goes. Yes.
1: It's yeah. yeah. That makes Throws sense back, to me. I think that totally. yes yeah. Yeah. that makes sense. Huh. And, I, I, I just uh, you know, it's interesting to think about, you know, you don't you normally think about uh, troops having better calm discipline and so on. Not everybody just, you know, having a pocket somewhere in their battle fatigues for their cell phone or something. But, um, you know, at the same time, it's like the troops had to work with what they were given. And if they're given Soviet era artillery that takes a really long time to target and they can do that faster, you know.
0: Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, I'm sure it's going to change. They'll probably set a policy. No phones. There was, uh, I didn't see who went by in the, uh, in the chat room. He said that when I was in the service, th- oh yeah, here it is. Uh, Hedge says that, uh, we had a total no phone policy in the army. He said, although people are people. So you never really know.
1: It's, it's, like I, remember, uh, my friend was in the Canadian artillery. It's like, even when he was allowed to do Skype calls and stuff home, it was from specific like mm-hmm. Linux machines they had set up that were locked down and, and. Would refresh between people so that they couldn't get infected with viruses mm-hmm. and
0: so on. Yep. Yeah, it's very serious stuff. It's very serious. Well, Mr. Jude, any other thoughts on uh, the CrowdStrike story? The
1: nope. big report. No, I just uh, thought I'd uh, break that one out because yeah, uh, it was a big long PDF.
0: Yeah, and if if you want to see how like one of the big players in the cybersecurity, quote unquote, industry right now, who's you know,
1: well, no. In this case, cyber strike or whatever strike, crowdstrike, crowdstrike, yeah, I would say is more on the security intelligence side, right. right? They're more looking at uh, how governments and militaries use cyber stuff rather than it, you know, one of these reports that it's actually looking at how the malware actually worked. You know, they didn't really deconstruct the malware in this particular case. They talked about how the malware was used uh, to military advantage as opposed to, you know, when we see the report from, like, uh, uh, Kaspersky, where it's like, here's the assembly of what the code was actually doing and how it was doing. it. Uh, but, yes, if you're interested, it's definitely uh, Yeah, it's just interesting.
0: interesting to see how they put it together. And their their name is getting mentioned so much these days in the press. They're definitely becoming really well-known. And so they have a lot of attention. You want to see how one of their reports is put together. Uh, the PDF is all linked up. Of course, the big highlights are noted by Alan in the show notes. Uh, which is always kind of useful if you just want the basic breakdown. So let's talk about mobile a little bit in another context. Let's talk about Ting. One of the things I love about Ting is no contract nor termination fee, only pay for what you use and get ready for this. They have zero incentive to block updates. They don't have a Ting experience that they need to update so that way you can get Ting video and Ting music streaming in the Ting app store. They have absolutely zero business incentive to block updates and every motivation to make sure you have a smooth experience. This is why I always encourage people, if you can, if you are fortunate enough, go over to Ting with an unlocked device that's getting directly updated by Google. And I, I... I, I think it's doable now even from a budget standpoint. I point out the Nexus 5X, which still has a couple of years of support, $338 from Ting. This is unlocked. This is no contract. This is pay for what you use, just your minutes, just your messages, just your megabytes, and $6 for the line and taxes. That, that's really it. They will not get in the way of any of the Google updates. They don't have any incentive to do so, and if you want to use CDMA or GSM, Ting has both networks. It's a really great deal. You combine it with the Google experience, and I—or actually, you know what? Honestly, what do what I do? I'm I'm no longer on Android, although I think the I think the Nexus 5X is a great phone. Uh, I got the I got the iPhone Seven on the upgrade program, and I get an unlocked one, and I put it on Ting, and right now I have it on the GSM network. I get a totally up to date phone, great new features, and I I have like things like Overcast and YouTube Red, so I download videos and podcasts on my Wi-Fi for listening while commuting. It's great. I'm almost always on Wi-Fi except for when I'm driving, so I basically treat the data network like a backup. I hate phone calls. I use Telegram for all my texting. No contract, so I can just turn it off if I need to. Check them out. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Go over there and help us out. Support the show and get $25 off a device. Or if you bring one over to Ting, check their BYOD page. They'll give you $25 in service credit. It's likely going to pay for more than your first month. That's how cheap Ting is. Techsnap.ting.com and a big thank you to Ting. For sponsoring the TechSnap program, TechSnapRockTing.com. Happy 2017, Ting. So, uh, we move on to the LeetBodNet. This sounds pretty good. Botnet's always going to, if it's got a name like that, it better be damn good, actually. Better live
1: up. Yep. <laughs> it's <laughs> interesting it? where they actually got the name from in this case. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm not sure it was done on purpose, but it seems likely. I love it. So, anyway. Uh, so, earlier this year, we saw the huge DDoS attack against Krebs. Uh, And analysis showed the attack-pelted servers was 620 gigabits per second of traffic, and there were fears that the release of the source code for that uh, Mirai botnet, or Mirai, uh, would mean that we saw even bigger attacks, although so far we haven't really seen that. Partly, I think, because the release of the source code caused there to be many forks of it, Mm. and now all these botnets are competing with each other, taking over segments of the available machines, Uh, and so it actually caused fragmentation. Uh, so no one botnet is as big as the original botnet Interesting. because they're all fighting over the dwindling pool of vulnerable machines. <laughs> uh, you know, as some of those machines have gotten patched so they're not vulnerable anymore or just uh, some of the good guys have taken the source code for the Mario botnet and actually used it to poison the machines that were uh, infectable. Mm-hmm. Like change the default password or just cripple it or whatever to actually stop it from being reinfected. Anyway, uh, we expected to see that. So uh, in the run-up to Christmas, the security firm Imperva managed to fend off a 650 gigabit denial of service attack. Ooh. Uh, but it was—it uh, had nothing to do with the Mirai botnet. It was a completely new form of malware that is described as just as powerful as and as uh, as the most dangerous one to date, uh, so the concern is that twenty seventeen uh, is going to get a lot worse. Oh, uh, so the, there's some interesting aspects to this malware. Uh, so it doesn't appear to really be related to Mirai at all. Um, interestingly, a uh, couple of quotes here. Clearly proud of their work uh, that they put into this malware, the creators, uh, the creator or creators, saw fit to sign it. Uh, analysis of huh. the attack showed that the TCP option headers in the SYN packets that they're sending, uh, spell out LEET. No. It's the LEET bot name. Oh gosh. So if you open the uh, second link further down, they'll actually show a Wireshark capture. This one? Of it spelling out Yep. If you scroll down a little bit, there's a picture of it spelling out LEET. A little bit further down. Boy, this is, look at the graphics on this
0: thing. This is a great post.
1: And you can see that the, uh, right here, TCP words. headers spell out 1337, yeah. which is LEET. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's kind Uh, of
0: ridiculous, actually.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The attack itself took place on uh, December 21st, Uh, but details about what happened are only just coming out now because it takes some time for that. It targeted a number of IP addresses uh, of Imperva's proxies, uh, not one specific customer. Uh, The DDoS mitigation company speculates this is because the attackers were unable to get a specific IP address for the customer whose website was being protected by the DDoS uh, proxies. So um, they just attacked the DDoS service in general instead of one particular customer Mm. uh, because it was easier that way. Uh, One wave of the attack generated as much as 650 gigabits of traffic uh, or more than 150 million packets per second. Uh, Despite attempting to analyze the attacks, Imperva has been unable to determine where it originated from. uh, As we discuss in a minute, it was actually using uh, reflection and amplification, Mm. so the from addresses are all fake. Uh, Imperva has been, uh, sorry, the company noted that it used a combination of both small and large payloads. Uh, So the idea behind using a small payload and sending many, many packets is that routers and switches have small CPUs. Sure. Right? And so they can only handle so many packets per second. Uh, So if you're sending 150 million packets a second... You can actually, even if, uh, you know, the switch has enough bandwidth to handle that, uh, you can end up tying up the CPU so much as it figures out, all right, that packet needs to go over there, that packet needs to go over there, that packet needs to go over there, uh, or whatever. Uh, you can actually knock the network offline by just saturating the CPU on the switch so it can't do any more work without actually having to clog the entire internet connection, right? Send more bandwidth than they have. Uh, but they mix that. So they did... Uh, small packets to try to overload the CPUs, and large packets to try to clog the pipes. Uh, so by mixing the two, uh, they were hoping to you know, find the limit of one or the other. All they wanted to do was mm-hmm. knock it offline, so they didn't care which, uh, so they were trying both. While the Mirai botnet uh, worked by firing randomly generated strings of characters to generate the traffic, in the case of the Leap botnet, the malware was accessing local files on the source machine scrambling them uh, by just mixing them together and randomizing it slightly and using that as its payload so each infected machine will be different because they're just grabbing random files off the hard drive scrambling it and sending it causing it to not be the same payload so it won't match a signature and it'll be harder for you know these ddos companies to filter out this traffic from other traffic Imperva described the attack as a mishmash of pulverized system files from thousands upon thousands of compromised devices. They said, beside painting a cool mental image, this attack method serves a practical purpose. Specifically, it makes for an effective obfuscation technique that can be used to produce an unlimited number of extremely randomized payloads. Using these payloads, an offender can circumvent signature-based uh, security systems that mitigate attacks by identifying similar uh, content. So, this way, the attack coming from each machine is unique because they're randomly picking random files that'll be different. Uh, while in this instance, Imperva was able to mitigate the attack, the company says the leap botnet is just a sign of things to come and brace yourself for a messy 2017. Uh, so, then if you get more into the details on the Imperva site, uh, they talk about how uh, they were using Anycast to basically absorb the traffic. Uh, as close to the source in multiple locations, filter it, and then proxy it back to uh, the actual websites, uh, only the clean traffic getting through. Uh, And so they noticed that the attackers just went after their Anycast IPs rather than going after a specific customer because no specific customer is tied to any one IP. Uh, It says, it's hard to say why the attackers didn't focus on a specific customer. Most likely, it was the result of the offender not being able to resolve the IP address of his effective victim, which was masked by uh, encapsular proxies. Hmm. And uh, lacking any better option, the offender turned his attention to the service that stood between him and the target. Hmm. Now, if you scroll up to the first graphic, the little uh, traffic graph, you can see the first DDoS burst uh, lasted about 20 minutes uh, and peaked at about 400 gigabits. Uh, because that failed to make a dent, the offender then paused, regrouped, and then tried a second round hmm. where they did 650 gigabits per second hmm, yeah. and more than 150 million packets per second for uh, about t- 20 more minutes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um,
1: so yeah, both attack bursts uh, originated from spoofed IP addresses, making it impossible to trace the botnet's actual geolocation or learn anything about the nature of the attacking yeah. devices. You scroll down a little bit. They have an animation of the of a log of the IP addresses, and you can see it just cycling through giant ranges of IP addresses. There you go. Scroll, scroll. Scrolling? Yeah, you can see it's just scrolling through, you know, one ten. There we go. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh sorry. That one. Yes. Uh, you can see it just scrolling through sequential IP addresses, basically. yeah I can, uh, yeah. so unlike the Mirai botnet, mm-hmm. which we know used direct attacks and didn't require reflection to get to that big number, this botnet is likely smaller because it only got to six hundred fifty megabits uh using reflection and amplification, so it' was, uh you know sending spoofed attacks and and probably bouncing off other machines uh in order to get that big but either way, that's a lot of traffic to have to deal with, <laughs> yeah, but unlike the Mirai stuff, we can't figure out that oh this is all coming from these hacked uh cameras or whatever because we don't know the actual original source IP or addresses of the attacking traffic uh and then yes yeah, so they say the the attack traffic generated two different uh sin payloads mm-hmm. the first was a regular size sin packet which ranges from 44 to 60 bytes but then they also had abnormally large ones ranging from 799 to 936 bytes uh the article on their website then goes in actually comparing some of the code from Mirai and seeing how in Mirai the TCP options are the same 99.9% of the time and that the SYN packet size is always exactly the same. So uh, this code may not actually be based on that uh, Mirai code. It might be just a completely different botnet. Mm, okay. Fair enough. And they say the... Uh, so, the regular-sized SIM packets were used to achieve a high uh, million packets per second rate, while the normally large SIM packets were used to uh, scale up the attack's capacity to 650 gigabits.
0: Hmm. Damn. Yeah. Let's use that to distribute some podcasts. Come on. We got to put all this. Come on. Let's put this in. Come on. Let's put this in something use. Uh, all right, Mr. Jude. Any other thoughts on that? Got additional coverage over at, uh, what was it, Network World that had that? Uh, Security, Security Week. Week. Security Week that had that, yeah. There's also some additional coverage over there if you guys want to read more. But yeah, any do you have any other thoughts? Uh no, I'm all out of thoughts. Well, I want to pick your brain. Uh, let's talk about a little problem I'm having, but first, let's mention IX Systems. Please mm-hmm. go to ixsystems.com/techsnap and find out about their wonderful powerful servers built around those incredible Intel processors designed to solve whatever your workload might be from large to small ixsystems.com slash techsnaps, where you go to support the show. That way they know you heard about it here. And then dig in. Everything from the free NAS Mini up to servers for just about, I mean, really any serious workload. They have some incredible systems they can design for you. Then the TrueNAS appliances, which are great, especially if you're working with VMware. And then the TrueRack, when you just want to build your own cloud, check it out at ixsystems.com slash techsnaps. But, Alan, before we mention the super cool build, the water-cooled build that they have mm-hmm. up on their blog, I have a question for you. Uh, sure. The Beard found a Black Friday sale on uh, Toshiba 5-terabyte drives. Yep. and well, uh, I, I
1: bought 52 of those
0: last year. Did you? <laughs> earlier this year. <laughs> 128 megabyte, megabyte buffer, too. Damn, that's great. Yep. So I, I can't remember what we have. Jeez, it's been so long now. I can't remember what JB has in it. its FreeNAS Mini. Uh, mm-hmm. It's 12 terabytes total. And uh, I don't remember how much is available to us. So it's the, it's a free NAS mini with uh you know it's got uh, all the bays are full now. What do you suggest? How many bays does it have?
1: Which size? It's
0: the it's the smaller one, so it's not so the it's XL. Only four bays? Yeah, it's four bays. Okay, which uh, has been rock solid for us, mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering what you think the best approach would be for us to move over to five. One thing we considered was just moving over everything over to a temporary NAS, like doing like a maybe like something like a ZFS end or another method yep. to copy everything over to a temporary NAS. Um, and then just rebuild the free NAS Mini with these drives. But I wondered if you had another recommendation for it.
1: There's a couple of ways to approach that. If there are spare status loss, which there probably are, you could hook up one of those five terabyte drives in addition to the four existing drives mm-hmm. and then do the pool replace command. So this does an online replacement. So unlike the other method, which is disconnect a drive, rely on redundancy while it resilvers onto uh, the new drive, your problem is. With only you're only using RAID Z1, mm. so you if if one of the other old drives dies during that, you lose all your data, which would be really bad. Whereas the Zpool replace, you keep all four original drives online, and then you just copy the data off one of them onto the new bigger drive. Uh, once that's done, then you remove uh, the old drive that you've replaced and put the Toshiba in there, and take a second Toshiba and do Zpool replace on the second drive. So as long as you have the spare SATA ports to be able to connect. You know, that one extra drive or two extra drives. It's got a SATA too. <clears throat> yeah. But I'm pretty sure that motherboard has like 12 SATA ports, so ah. you're fine. Um, it's It's got at least six and you only have four drives, so you'll be fine. Uh, you can replace each of those drives online uh, that way. Uh, and then once all four of the drives in the pool are the five terabytes, your pool will just magically have the more free space. Uh, But yes, the other option is just another machine somewhere that you can uh, plug the four drives into, uh, set it up with FreeNAS, create the pool, and then ZFS send over from one to the other until all the files are copied over. Uh, Although then you're limited by your one gig NIC, uh, so it'll take a lot longer than doing it locally where you can do hundreds of megabytes a second. That was one thing I was thinking about, yeah. Uh, It really depends. Uh, The nice thing with, you know, uh, the little hack to, you know, hook up the fifth drive and just, you know, set it on top of the case or whatever with the saticatives hanging with the side off of it temporarily, mm-hmm. is that also when you're doing the Zpool replaced that way, your NAS is still online the whole time. So you can still access all the files and, and do your regular NAS stuff on it. That's a winner. Right? So it doesn't impact your production workflow. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, how many of those drives did you get? <laughs> four. I got four. Okay. And I would yeah, like yeah. to, can, on, yeah. see, I kind of was thinking that one reason I was kind of maybe tempted to go eSATA. Is because then I could. I have a. I have a external four drive bay that works, and then I mm-hmm. could keep the existing drives that are in yes, there, and they
1: just add these new drives as a second RAID Z1, yeah. and they get all the space of both drives. Yeah.
0: And they've been working great. I mean, just but just such a solid machine.
1: If I was going to do that, I would probably put the new drives mm-hmm. in the chassis and the old drives in the ESAC. Yeah, I was tempted to do that too, <laughs> uh, just because the new drives are faster. Would there? Do I? Would I Would I have to do much? ZFS doesn't care when you move the drives to a different location. As long as it can see all the drives, it will just, when it boots up, it'll import the pool and be like, okay. I think I am going to do that then. It doesn't matter. Like, you can change the order and the device names and hook them up to a different HBA. Sweet. That's one of the things that's awesome about ZFS. Whereas with old hardware raid, if the card died and you replaced it with an identical card Mm -hmm. that was slightly different, it would be like, nope, I won't import that pool. That's foreign. I don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas. Mm -hmm. XenFS is just like, I know exactly what to do because I spent the first 512K of each hard drive explaining this is this drive and it goes here. Really? And I just read those labels off each drive and go.
0: I love it. Then I am going to do that thing because I was I was feeling that inclination anyways. Uh, so mm-hmm. then on the other end of IX systems, they have this cool new uh, water – Is it, I think it's water-cooled, this water-cooled yes, server? Yes, water-cooled. Tell me about this, because this looks pretty cool.
1: Uh, So yeah, uh, a customer is building a new system for a supercomputing lab, and so they want to overclock to get even more megahertz out of their machine. And so if you want to overclock, you probably want to water cool to get your best efficiency. Uh, Especially in this case, because that's like a 2U chassis, so there's not much room for a giant cooler on your CPU. So you can see they have water cooling, and it runs to their uh, radiator block, which is just mounted to the uh, row of big 80-millimeter fans uh, that do like 12,000 RPM uh, on, in the chassis. Uh, so this, I'm sure, is actually a custom build that uh, iX did for the mm-hmm.
0: customer. Yeah, it looks like right now, 64 gigs of RAM, capable of going 128 gigs, which is nuts, in an in a, uh, yes, i7 I- I- Haswell system with 8 oh, cores. Oh, it's
1: an i7 Haswell. Okay. Mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense for overclocking.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. they got it ser- currently running. Wow. Wow. We were able to safely overclock this system from 3 gigahertz to an amazing speed of 4.8 gigahertz.
1: I heard somebody got that same chip up to 7 gigahertz using uh, liquid nitrogen. <laughs>
0: wow. That is so
1: cool. Jeez. Jeez. I could, I could
0: do a few things with 4.8 gigahertz. 920 watts of redundant uh, high efficiency uh, power, too.
1: Yeah, those are like gold or platinum certified super micro power supplies. They are very nice. Man,
0: iX Systems at the top of their game. Check them out at ixsystems.com/techsnap and a big thank you to iX.
1: Yeah. They're like said, they will build custom and whatever it needs to solve your problem. Yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, also, while we uh, while we're talking about uh, things that are of the BSD flavor and variants, let's mention a new episode of the BSD Now program, episode 169,
1: 2016 highlights. I actually took it's over and hosted I this I don't one. even know. Oh, do you? Okay. Because yeah. I don't even know what's in that episode. Yeah. I didn't help pick, like for the tech snap that aired last week, I picked out the stories and gave the list to recap. But for the BSD now, I was just told, you don't have to show up next week. I'm like, yeah. okay. I'm I really only no there for a couple of minutes.
0: Episode. It's mostly all you guys, but uh, I do kick it off. And uh, I, uh, I do I my- I might f-
1: actually have to watch a little bit of it just to see what was picked as the best moment. You have
0: to see what I'll, you have to tell me how I did for the tar snap read because it was my first time ever. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> But I tried my best. <laughs> so, yeah, check it out. Uh, it's it's like a crossover episode. Uh, right, that's kind of perfect right as we're reaching 300. Uh, check it out, episode 169 of the BSD Now program. Go get the HD version so that way you get high-definition Jude in your face. This is about the halfway point of this show, so it's a great point. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Snap Feedback Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website like Connor did. Our first email this week, he says, hey guys, love the show. I have a free NAS running four two terabyte refurbished drives. I know, I'm feeling poor these days. In a RAID Z1. My question is, how hard would it be to add two or, f- two or four more drives and migrate to a RAID Z2? I'm running an Asus Z97-A MOBO. I have an i5-4690K and 16 gigs of RAM. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so you can't just migrate from a RAID Z1 to a RAID Z2. That's not an option. Uh, However, if you add four more drives, you could add a second RAID Z1. Uh, giving you, you know, eight drives total if your motherboard has enough SATA slots or if you can add a, uh, a control Starry's controller card or whatever to get the extra SATA slots you need. Uh, and, you know, if your case actually has room for eight hard drives, uh, but you kind of mentioned adding four more drives, so hopefully that's an option. Uh, so, yeah, your easiest approach to expand the storage there is add your four new drives as a second RAID Z1, and then you basically what have what's called, uh, what, the RAID 50, where you mm-hmm. basically have uh, you're striping across two separate RAID Z1s uh, and you would, you know, again, if you if your four more drives were also two terabytes, that would give you a total of uh, six drives for storage at two terabytes apiece equals, you know, 12 gigabytes of, or terabytes of usable storage and two redundant drives. Uh, for converting to a RAID Z2, your only option is to, you know, back up the data and create a new array. Okay. Um, so, okay. there's that. hmm
0: all right, Connor, good luck. You and mm-hmm. I, similar boats. Now, moving on to Sean's question. He says, I thought but, it would never...
1: Uh, I guess that's why uh, the option I was kind of recommended to most people is if you can afford it. And specifically, if you're in the boat where you're going to be buying, say, two drives at a time, you know, mm-hmm. once or twice a year or something to expand your storage. Right. If you just go with mirrors, while well, you get less of the storage right away, your real advantage is you can just add two drives at a time as you can afford them until your chassis is full. And once it's full, you just replace the two oldest, smallest drives with bigger drives, and keep doing that in sets until and cycle through it over and over and over again. And you can basically have infinitely growing storage uh, without having to replace your hardware. Um, so take the hit up front, so, so, but down yeah, the road. Mirrors give you more flexibility if you know you're going to need that. Now, if you know your chassis is a FreeNAS Mini and only has four slots, uh, then you know you can just. Replace all the drives at once, or you can replace drives one at a time. You just don't get the extra storage until you replace the last one. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So Sean says I've heard of the stories where
0: people nuke their install with a typical rm-rf on root and thought, "Why would you ever do that?" You knew it would kill your system. And then I did exactly that. I was trying to rm the contents of a USB drive before I did some DDing and freeNAS onto it, and I was typing faster than I was thinking. Before I could react, my entire slash home is gone. And my laptop is crippled. You mentioned almost every week that uh, ransoms where people pay are actually no backup fees. Well, so my question is, what do you recommend as a home or small office level backup solution? Uh, What services are local servers and clients? Should I use frequency? Should I just backup slash home? Or should I backup my entire system? Get a whole system image. What about my file server and my Windows machines? If I can't get rid of them, what should I do with them? Thanks for all the help and all 300 episodes of Great Info.
1: That's a lot. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think he didn't mean literally RMRF slash because that is usually uh, won't work on most systems. You have to provide some extra options, but you can easily RMRF you know slash home by accident or whatever. Uh, so yes, backup solutions. Uh, this is a question that comes up relatively often it really depends what you're backing up how much there is and what your oil level is and so on um it could be something as simple as as using rsync or something to back stuff up to the file server you mentioned uh or uh tar snap is great we were just talking about that uh it allows you to do uh backups where you encrypt it on your machine and then send it to the cloud and that way uh no one not even the people at the backup service tar snap can access your files
0: this is a hard question to answer because in part it comes down to what's your style of loading a system. I just prefer backing up my personal data. I don't even bother backing up applications and I never bother backing up my operating system on any of my machines that I use on a on a daily basis because honestly if something dies or if you know something goes wrong I kind of see it as an opportunity to redo the installation, and as long as mm-hmm. I have my user data, I have a set of applications that I just reconfigure, resync the data back down, and I'm good to go.
1: Well, especially uh, with the more Unix style, almost all your settings are in your home directory, or you know, maybe yeah. oh, you yeah. want to back up slash etc. But yeah, uh, I usually don't bother backing up the operating system. You know, with the scale engine servers are a bad example because most of our edge servers are literally throwaway. If if anything goes wrong, we just overwrite we just reinstall over top of the old and don't keep any files at all there's nothing on the systems that's unique that we need to keep yeah uh sometimes we'll keep the ssh key to avoid all the extra warnings or whatever but even our ssh keys are all managed by puppet so it doesn't actually cause a warning it actually replaces it in the known host file on every machine with the new correct key uh i would just say too like uh you can go as far
0: as where which can do four just entire bare metal restores. You could go as far as monthly clonezillas that you rotate around. I mean, you can, you can really go pretty far with it this.
1: Really, it comes down to a couple of things, like, uh, is it okay to actually have your laptop offline for a couple hours while you're doing a full disk image? Uh, and how quickly do you need to be able to restore? Is reinstalling the OS and then restoring your home directory enough, or do you have enough extra stuff where that's going to be problematic? I yeah, wish we uh, had, like, a really
0: solid, like, succinct answer, but it's it's definitely one of yeah, those. It depends.
1: Remote backups is like, well, how fast is your internet connection? Do you have bandwidth limits? Uh, you know, how much data do you actually have that needs to be backed up? And yeah. how often? What's your upload? Uh, yeah. So, backups to your file server is usually a great way, and then maybe off-site from there if, if uh, you need, or you can yeah. if you're you you know, using choose free a NAS, subset of things.
0: If you're using FreeNAS to uh, look at the crash plan, I think there's still a crash plan plugin. Yep. Take a look at that. That's also uh, totally usable.
1: Yeah. And it's uh, a great way to back up Windows. Does
0: Backblaze have a free NAS plugin? Because if they don't, they should get on that. That would be great. They really should. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Token or Tokerot, Tori, Torikan from our IRC, Torikan says So, my ISP has a slow upload speed and it has very high download speeds, which is probably pretty typical configuration for most of us. Is my download speed affected? when I max out the upload speed. So is my down affected? Or I suppose people would wonder about the reverse, too.
1: Yes. Uh, And the answer to both is somewhat. So uh, the way TCP, or the Transmission Control Protocol, works, which is what almost everything on the Internet is, is it has what's called a sliding window. So in order to make, uh, you know, especially when we think back to the Internet of the 1970s, um, computers were slow. But your computer could be three times faster than the other person's because... That was one generation of change, right? Uh, It was like, oh, your machine is 10 megahertz, but mine's 33 megahertz. What are you going to do? Right? So, TCV has a mechanism to make sure that the sender isn't sending faster than the receiver can actually process the incoming data. Mm. Because at that point, the throughput limit was usually, literally, the CPU couldn't ingest the information any faster. And if you kept sending it, it would end up getting dropped on the floor and have to be resent, wasting the precious bandwidth. Uh, So... When I send data to Chris, um, I send a bunch, the initial amount, which is called the initial congestion window. Uh, so I send you know, 64 kilobytes or something. Uh, and then once Chris gets that, he sends me back an acknowledgement saying, I've got the 64 kilobytes, right? So then the side of the window slides up to 64 kilobytes. Mm-hmm. And then so I'm like, okay, he got all that. So I'm going to send him some more and then some more. And then I get an act saying he received... 64 kilobytes, but there's still 64 kilobytes outstanding, but I've, the congestion window is 128k now, so I can send a second 64k and acknowledge it, and then I send another one, and keep going, and then it will speed up based until we get to about the maximum bandwidth, and then uh, we'll just keep doing that, so that uh, in order for me to in order for you to download more data you need to tell the other side that you've received the data you've already got if that takes longer, because your upload speed is maxed out, because you're you know, uploading something to a website, um, it's going, or if you're, because you're sending your backups to the cloud, you're using all your upload bandwidth, your download of the latest game off Steam or whatever is going to be slower because every one of those ACTS uh, acknowledgements you're trying to say, say I got the last one megabyte of the download, uh, takes longer because it has to wait in line to go out behind some of the backup, right? And then... It makes the other side think you can't handle the data fast enough and slow it down. Uh, so yeah, um, there's not an exact rate of you know how much upload it's going to take per download per uh, megabit of download, but you definitely don't want to be pushing your upload to the max. You want to definitely throttle to like at most seventy percent of it, so that there's plenty left for your downloads to get yeah. the access. That makes sense. That's a really good explanation. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, and it's uh, you know a common mistake people make with BitTorrent. Uh, if you throttle your upload too much, then you're not nobody's going to share back with you. Uh, in particular, BitTorrent has this system called the optimistic unchoke. <laughs> I so, love that. Um, <laughs> when you, when you're when you're downloading a torrent and you're uploading, you try to upload to people that you're downloading from if they still need it, right? Because you're like, all right, I, you give me that piece, so I'll give you this piece, right? And you keep doing that. Uh, eventually, you need a piece that none of the people you already know has. So you do this optimistic unchoke where you give away a piece to somebody you haven't met yet or don't don't know, hoping that it results in them giving you a piece back, right? And And getting more downloads going and speed things up. Uh, if you don't have enough upload, you don't do the optimistic unchoke thing, and you don't send out packets to people, and they they don't in turn give you back. Uh, and you know, the more you do that, the more download speeds you're actually going to get. But if you cap, if you let too much upload happening, you're going to choke off your downloads and slow them down. Uh, so you know, getting that setting just right can be uh, a little bit of experimentation. The worst part for that. Is that depending on your ISP, the amount that you can successfully upload and download can change throughout the day. You know, peak times or uh, my old ISP when I had DSL would throttle torrents until 2 a.m. and then they were wide open. Huh. You know, I think it was from 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. Uh, torrents were throttled. Uh, your upload was limited to a certain amount, but after that, they were wide open. Hmm. Uh, and so it came down to, you know, most torn programs have a, a scheduling thing where you can actually change the things over time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yes, uh, what was really interesting was when I was doing some experiments recently uh, with doing ZFS replication over 40 gigabit Ethernet. Oh, really? Oh, oh really? <laughs> yes. Uh, and to the point where, like, just the ACK messages coming back the other way were adding up to like 60 megabits a second. <laughs> it's like, that's more than most people's downloads nowadays. Yeah. And I'm doing that in just acknowledging the packets I'm receiving in the opposite direction, which were peaking at like 14 gigabits per second. Wow. That's an extreme example. Yeah. That, that's almost two gigabytes per second.
0: Alan, did you know that we need more questions? Go over to uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Now, next week, as far as I know, my math, and if everything goes as planned, will be Alan and I's last episode in these seats. So it's your last chance to get uh, your episode or your question in while while we are still here. And then if everything goes as planned, starting in 3.01, there'll be uh, Wes and uh, Dan taking over, and it would be really great if they could start off with a great batch of questions that they could yep. thrive on and they could Especially really dig into. you can
1: get the questions in sooner so they have time to work on the answers yeah. uh, before the first couple of episodes. Yeah, so uh, mm-hmm. not only would it be great for
0: us to have a few questions for our last episode next week, but it would be awesome to sort of set them up uh, with a great set of questions. And we are pretty low since it's been the holidays and last
1: uh, episode yep. was a best of. But, you know. Uh, Dan, Dan is Dan the backup man. So if you have backup questions, especially about bacula, you should definitely send those in for Dan. Yeah, yeah, that's great.
0: Jupiterbroadcasting.com/contact. If you have
1: any questions about tape, if you want to know anything about tape and tape backups, Dan's the man. Wow, uh,
0: and uh, you can also just email directly TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All right, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup for stories, it just didn't fit at the top of the show. But we want to give you some links to read on your own after the show. Some of these links came from our subreddit, too, at techsnap.reddit.com. This first story, I think, did. T-Mobile is rolling out the battery shutdown update to remaining Galaxy Note 7s on their network. So they're
1: going to do a roll. you a- haven't uh, taken advantage of the, what was it, like, uh, recall warranty replacement thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, then your phone's going to get bricked.
0: <laughs> now, I, it sounds like like some super high percentage, to... 93%, of I think, they say here in this article, of Note 7 devices in the U.S. have been returned. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of the few that's still just like...
1: If you have somehow not heard about what's happening with the Note no, 7. No, at
0: this point, you, it must be a that? choice. It's a choice, right? Yeah. And so what the update's going to do is just going to not allow the device to ever get charged again. <laughs> so what you do is just plug it in before you ever get the update and just leave it at that. Wait, would that? No. That's a bad idea.
1: And then it starts on fire, and mm-hmm. uh, you don't have no
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, this $300 device lets you steal a MacBook encryption password in 30 seconds. I'm betting yeah. this must so, be. So uh, you
1: plug this into a hibernating or sleeping MacBook, uh-huh. and it turns out that the password to decrypt the hard drive is stored in memory in plain text uh, and isn't scrubbed before the Mac goes to sleep or shut down.
0: And this affects even if you use FileVault to encrypt your home yeah, directory. So
1: this is specifically, it's the password to decrypt the FileVault. Okay. Okay. Um, and when you sleep or hibernate the machine, it doesn't erase the password before going to sleep. So you plug this device in when it first comes back up. uh, The UEFI firmware is allowing this thing because it's connected directly to the PCI Express bus because it's USB C or whatever Mm -hmm. or or Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt. Yeah. uh, It can read the memory. So the EFI uh, system should be putting uh, DMA or direct memory access protections in place to prevent it from reading that memory. But it's not. It engages those after a little bit later in the boot. So there's a short window where that can do it. Uh, and macOS should be erasing that password from memory before going to sleep. Uh, so why that, is you know, it in memory? Well, it has to be to decrypt the the. Well, the like... password doesn't actually need to be in memory. Yeah, so that's a good point. It should be being erased even sooner. Yeah, but it's not. Hmm. Well, I know in, in FreeBSD with the full disk encryption, it gets erased like immediately after it's uh, used to generate the. Yeah. The actual decryption key. Yeah, they didn't want to use that, though. They wanted to make yeah, FileVault. So the actual decryption keys are kind of kept around because you need them to encrypt and decrypt the data. Uh, but, you know, when uh, you suspend, you probably want to erase those and require them to be re-entered uh, when you come out of suspend.
0: The real great feature of File Vault, if I recall correctly, is it puts your entire home directory in an encrypted DMG container file. What could go wrong? Just one big old, always
1: growing DMG. Uh, On HFS+. If it was on a real file system, maybe that wouldn't be so bad.
0: Yeah. Uh, This next story is everybody's worst nightmare. Android ransomware supposedly innocently infected an LG smart TV. Now, at first, LG wasn't super helpful. But uh, this, this this is a nightmare scenario. Software engineer Darren Cotton, or however you say his name, goes over to a family member's house during Christmas. Visits family. Expects the typical tech support issue. Runs into... Full-fledged Android ransomware installed on their phone. They say they just tried to install an app to watch movies, and the next thing they so know, they the, TV, the, the TV reboots. TV. Yeah, yeah, on the T- yeah on the TV. The TV reboots and then comes up with this ransomware thing. Then he tries to call it's LG. Just, is that ransomware trying to look like a fake letter from mm-hmm. the FBI? Yeah, a lot something? of them
1: do that. Well, it's pretty sketch. Yeah, it even says FBI the, up there at the when, top. I love when Canadians fall for that crap. It's like, the FBI is not even in this bloody country. What are you
0: doing? FBI and the Department of Justice. That's pretty great. Uh, and so he says he called up LG, and LG wasn't going to tell him how to do factory reset. He had to take it into the story, so they, they weren't going to reveal that process. But then, you know, he started getting some, some attention online, and uh, LG turned around and, and helped him out after a little bit of pressure. He had to post a video to YouTube first, and then they had to get uh, computer coverage, but uh, on December 29th, LG stepped up and helped him unlock the TV.
1: That would be today.
0: And did a factory reset. Yeah. And they found out about it on Christmas. <clears <Yep>. <clears <throat> so we got an Ubuntu security notice you might need to know about. Yes. Uh, APT a
1: vulnerability in APT found by Google's Project Zero. So not where like not it a, can just install bad software.
0: Oh, OK. So apt. Not like advanced persistent threat, but like apt gets. No, but
1: actually apt the software. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So... If you try to install, say, the security updates on your Ubuntu machine, somebody could also make it install some malware along with it. Affecting 1610,
0: 1604, and 1404, which likely means all y'all out there. Yes. So basically,
1: both of the long-term support versions that are still available. Project Zero, huh? Interesting. Good catch. Yep. Google found that uh, Android uh, can easily be... Yep.
0: (laughs) I'm sure uh, this is probably... uh, This is one of those stories where if you and I were just starting TechSnap today... At this point in the show, like, you know, another 300 weeks after that, this probably was going to be the beginning of some big things going on in the background. Uh, uh, Alan's good friend and uh, buddy, uh, President Obama, announced that he wants to remove the dual hat arrangement, which was once appropriate for the fledging Cybercom division. He wants to split the the role between the National Security Agency and the Cyber Warfare Command Agency and uh, have them each have their own commander. He says, Obama, that Cybercom has matured to the point where it needs its own leader. Uh, Cybercom's mission is when ordered to disrupt and destroy adversaries' networks, it's also to defend the nation against incoming threats critical to systems and protect the military's computers from cyber attack. It was established in 2009 uh, at Fort Meade, and it basically sits right next to uh, actual NSA personnel who do all of the actual work. And uh, they use each other's resources, mostly Cybercom uses NSA resources. The two organizations should have separate leaders, Obama says, that can devote themselves to each organization's respective mission and responsibilities, but should continue to leverage the shared capabilities, a.k.a. all of the goodies the NSA collects, and the synergies developed under the dual hat arrangement. A.k.a. they're beefing things up.
1: What I'm wondering is what's different between that cyber warfare command and the air forces
0: mm-hmm. cyber mm-hmm. yeah there's yeah. a couple of them yeah and the, and also the department of homeland security also has one too so yeah. i don't know and the cia and the cia has uh, quite uh, yeah so here's a tweet from uh, john lambert i guess is how you say it he says how is ransomware getting past your sandbox analysis it's checking where it's executing first this yeah, sounds so if pretty neat yeah you click on
1: the picture it gets bigger so you can All see right
0: zooming in and enhancing but it.
1: yeah so this malware actually Geo is its IP address that is where it's being run, and determines if it's running in, you know, Amazon, Bitdefender, Blue Coat, Cisco, Trend anything Micro. with the word cloud in it, or yeah. data center, or data center, yeah. uh, or dedicated, or you know, Fire Microsoft, or ESET, Microsoft. So it figures out if it's running in a sandbox. Ovh. That's going to, uh, yeah. So basically, a sandbox or anywhere where you can rent a dedicated server. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if it sees that, then it basically plays dumb, acts dead, doesn't do anything, doesn't get detected by the sandbox, then runs on the endpoint, finds that it's not running on you know, uh... Sandbox. Your blue coat Bit Defender or whatever, and then uh, runs and takes over the system or whatever.
0: And we have the face of office uh, malware. Interestingly, I don't
1: see Kaspersky on the list there. Yeah. And almost every other virus company. Huh. No, actually, I don't see Symantec either, so... That's a big one. Uh, I think I think you see that at the end there. That's that one looks like semantic. Maybe yeah. they just figured that such pieces of crap, anyways. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's just going to show how it's, it piece itself and figures out if it's running in the cloud uh, or at, uh, one of these security appliances, and then doesn't run. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's one way to do it. And then uh, the second one here is another one uh, where it shows a different way you can work around it.
0: Now this is uh, what like things embedded in office documents.
1: Yeah. So, in this one, they actually trick the user into running the macro. So, this way, when it, goes in, it runs in the sandbox, it doesn't do anything because there's no user to click on it. Sure. But they embed uh, what looks like a fake Windows dialog, which is actually just part of the document.
0: With a compatibility uh, checker error.
1: Yeah, and tells you, hey, see that button up there in the yellow bar that will allow the macro to run? <laughs> click that. Ah. <laughs> and then boom, infected. So they embedded Uh, JPEG in
0: there to get them to click the enable macro, which then, that's that's great.
1: I've seen another one. Somebody uh, got a Gmail email where it had the attachment. So it looked like a real Gmail attachment with a click, but it was actually an image, and it linked to take you somewhere else that would then give you a Google login prompt and steal your Google password. Yeah, John Podesta. It looked like the attachment from a Gmail email. But it was actually an image that just sent you over there.
0: That was what I think. That's uh, just it, like what John Podesta clicked on. If Panesta the image hadn't on.
1: been so blurry, uh, because the guy had a four K screen, he probably wouldn't have noticed. Wow. So, yeah. uh, so if you click on an attachment and it takes you to a login screen, triple check that it's actually Google and not, you know, some weird domain, right. with a fake-looking Google page. <laughs>
0: John, uh, now this is one that uh, is sort of follow up to something we talked about. Was it just last week the uh, Systems We Love Conference?
1: Uh, it would be two weeks ago two weeks, because oh, last week right. was the week we had off. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, this is posted by Brian Control. What do we have here?
1: Yeah, uh, so it's just his uh, reflections on the Systems We Love Conference, which we featured the videos from uh, two weeks ago. Uh, but some interesting uh, ideas about you know our conference layout where you have twenty minute lightning talks. So that's a bit longer than. a Standard lightning talk, but much shorter than, you know, most conference lecture talks are 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, going for 20 minutes allows enough time to get some detail, but mm. uh, short enough that it's, you know, uh, you can go through a lot of different topics in the day Yeah. and liking the single track. So what BSD can does or whatever to try to deal with this is having three or four talks happening at once and then you have to pick. So it's like. If we made each one of them only 20 minutes, you could actually probably fit the three tracks into, um, all running at one. Instead of, instead of three concurrent tracks, you could just have each of them only gets 20 minutes and does, um, uh, you know, everything's a single, um, track. Now at BSD can part of the reason we don't do that is because there's not rooms big enough to fit all of the people at all uh, for all the same talk. But, um, but I think he said that the biggest mistake they made at Systems We Love was not having enough or long enough breaks. Uh, I think because I agree the breaks are really important because that's when you actually talk to the other people. You know, especially in the, the lecture type talks where you're listening to other people talk, it's, you know, impolite to be talking to other people at that time. So the in-between where you have the time to actually have, you know, the conversations about each of the topics or, you know, ask more questions of the speaker and that kind of stuff. Yeah, very cool. Check it out, linked in the
0: roundup. Now, this one came from the New York Times today, how Russia recruited elite hackers for its cyber war. And I just have a couple of interesting bits highlighted, but you can read the whole long article uh, for more than three years. Rather than rely on military officers working out of isolated bunkers like in the Ukraine, Russian government recruiters have scouted a wide range of programmers, placing prominent ads on social media sites, offering jobs to college students and professional coders. And even speaking openly about scouting Russia's criminal underworld for potential talent. These all sound like things the U.S. should be doing, too. Uh, Then it goes on to say, if you graduate, this is an ad. If you graduated from college, if you're a technical specialist, if you're ready to use your knowledge, we give you an opportunity. Uh, Members of the science uh, squadrons in the video say, this is what posted on social media. Comfortable accommodations are given, shown an apartment furnished with a washing machine as an incentive. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, It's Russia after all.
0: Yeah. Uh, they say uh, experts uh, say that the strategy is more than just talk. There have even been cases – get this, Alan. There's even been cases where cyber criminals are arrested but never end up in prison. Instead, they might start working for the go- Russian government. This is according to CrowdStrike, which reminds me – what was that guy's name that uh, the FBI flipped – Remember we talked about him in, towards the beginning of the show, where he was part of Anonymous and they flipped him, but and then he went and exposed his buddies and logged all of the chat conversations. Come on, chat room, who's yep. that? Is there's this, that one. Um, yeah, there's been a few of these. It's something that's kind the, of uh,
1: There was also the guy. It's not quite the same, but uh, the guy who told the FBI, I think it was uh, when Manning was giving the documents to WikiLeaks or whatever. Is somebody that basically been arrested before, and so didn't want to piss off the FBI. Right, so not quite the same, but
0: Sabu—that's who it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, Sabu yeah, was yeah, the one you're yep. thinking of. <clears throat> Thanks, Chatter Boy, They're handy. Uh, okay, next story in the roundup: Canadian telecoms are pushing back on proposed
1: police powers. So, what's this about, mm-hmm. Alan? This is a uh, Bill C fifty one, which expanded what ISPs have to keep records of, and so on. And uh, both ISPs, both big and small, so big like Rogers, which is basically AT and T in Canada, uh, or uh, and tech savvy, which is a smaller ISP, uh, have been pushing back against you know what they see as silly things they have to do.
0: Yeah, boy, that's good. Good for them. Glad to hear that.
1: Wow. Well, of course they came out against it. I don't know if it will actually mean anything. Is yeah, form. yeah.
0: Well, there's that. Uh, all right. Well, let's get out, let's talk about those uh, Russian hackers because their methbot fraud. <laughs> I never thought I'd be saying that. Stole 180 million dollars in online ads. Methbot fraud.
1: Yeah. So they, they created 250,000 fake websites and then sold advertising on them and generated 300 million fake video impressions per day and charged ad networks to, for the ads on the videos. So apparently they're making as much as $5 million a day off this uh, advertising fraud. That doesn't sound... basically just having botnet, netted machines go to their fake websites to cause traffic.
0: That's the clever them, yeah. part. It was like, how are you getting the traffic? Ah, bots. The meth bot ring. 300 million mm-hmm. fake video impressions daily.
1: Uh, who's paying that out, I wonder? That's interesting. Well, anybody that's paying... Uh, you know, they're tricking the ad networks into making it... You know, uh, American traffic is usually worth a lot more than, say, Russian traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you've got a lot of botnetted machines, yeah. especially when you can divide it up by 250,000 uh, fake websites. You know, my problem when I tried this was trying to do it with only three websites.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That same. was
1: also... Wow. Like 15 years ago. Yeah.
0: Yep. All right. So let's talk about something else from Project Zero this week. A Chrome OS exploit.
1: What? Well, in particular, this is a guest post. I think it's the first time I've ever seen Project Zero oh. have a post that wasn't by somebody that works at Google. Yeah. That. Yeah. But this is a researcher who found a bug in Chrome OS. Uh, there's a, a one-byte buffer overflow, and he actually managed to work that into an exploit, which... <laughs> He's very nice. Good on him. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he went and did a blog post about it and got it up on the Project Zero. Very nice. That's, that's a great read. Check <laughs> that out in a roundup. Uh,
0: all right. How about this one? The Android malware that has infected Barnes & Noble. Uh, ADUPS
1: add-ups? Yeah. So this is not so much malware. It's actually the firmware management system. Basically, they sell this to companies making devices. Um And it manages firmware updates, and it does all kinds of big data telemetry stuff to tell you about how people are actually using the device. So, spyware. Um, But it turns out the version included on the Barnes & Noble's tablet is one of the vulnerable ones. And only their newer version isn't vulnerable to being taken over and turned into actual malware on top of the spyware. So, yes, this is uh, legitimate spyware that companies sell to device manufacturers, and then it has vulnerabilities and gets turned into bad actual malware. The only thing that sounds more morally offensive to me are
0: these rogue lawyers that made $6 million shaking down porn pirates.
1: Yeah, so these are people we've known for doing this kind of copyright trolling uh, lawsuits and stuff, but we actually have details on how they did it in this Hmm. case. So in this case, uh, these two lawyers have been charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and wire fraud after it turns out what they would do is they would buy the copyright to some porn from somewhere, right? Then they would go and upload it to the Pirate Bay and otherwise, themselves upload it, and then track down everybody who downloaded it and then try to sue them. But they're the one that posted it on the torrent site. Oh, these very and clever. They didn't tell the court that
0: part. No. <laughs> well, why would you? Because
1: <laughs> normally, like, you know, in the Canadian version of the law, usually they only really go after the person who actually did the uploading to the torrent site. Yeah. In this case, it was them. And so I would say even if you own the copyright, if you're the one that uploads it to the pirate site, then, you know, you were giving permission for people to download it.
0: This next link looks super fascinating. And it's,
1: it's nice to see those lawyers getting
0: smacked. And getting a little exposure. Uh, a century of surveillance, an interactive timeline. An interactive timeline, ladies and gentlemen. Of FBI investigations. This is really super cool, Alan. Yeah,
1: so this is from Muckrock. They're the guys that help people do freedom of information requests against the FBI and oh, so on. Uh-huh. And so they've compiled, like, every investigation ever and put it on a timeline. Wow. So you can see the acceleration and when they were searching, who and who they were spying on and all this stuff.
0: Boy, you're talking about, jeez, holy crap. It really blows up on here. Mm-hmm. Dang. That's a great find. I'm going to read that after the show.
1: And, like, the part you were at there was only, like, the... 50s. You know, yeah, the the anti-communism purges and so on. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oof. Surveillance, whistleblowing, and security engineering. This looks like a blog post about a rootkit? What's this?
1: This is about the uh, rootkit installed at Yahoo to let the NSA spy on the Yahoo emails. Ah. So this is originally from uh, the version of October, but it was updated recently uh, with information when the... Uh, It turns out the NSA's rootkit was actually a Linux kernel module, which raises the question, is that a GPL violation?
0: Something tells me they probably did not check the license compatibility before that. In
1: particular, yes. It seems like the exploit is not not released under the GPL. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you linked it against a Linux kernel.
0: That would be so funny. It's like t- it's like the modern version of tax fraud. Wouldn't that be great if that somehow developed into a course? Court or is this case? like
1: at the you, <clears throat> you break the gangsters getting the tax fraud? Yeah. yes you like could break the NSA by getting them for something the GPL tells me
0: population. this is probably going nowhere. That'd but would be the uh,
1: first time the GPL was ever useful. Hey,
0: software conservancy, I got a gig for you. Why don't you look into it? All right, uh, last but not necessarily least. Actually, we have two more stories, don't we? Uh, no,pe we don't. Last story. Last. Oh boy, Alan. Oh boy. I like this one because it's got a. A GIF, not a GIF. Leaked files expose flaws in an official report into an inmate's death. And it looks like they got uh, some video surveillance that they've embedded yeah. in the... so
1: basically, uh, what this is actually about, though, is a law firm getting hacked and all of its files being leaked. Oh. Or in particular, not so much the law firm getting hacked as the law firm accidentally exposing all of its private files to the internet and then somebody getting access to them.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is pretty interesting. What an interesting way to sort of come about in something like that. Uh, And uh, if that uh, law firm needs uh, any improvements in their security, just stop by our IRC chat room. I'm sure they'll be happy to help you out. If you'd like to submit a story to our roundup, techsnap.reddit.com would be a great place to go. I usually check that before every show when we toss them in there. You can join us live for episode 300 next week by going to jblive.tv. You can get it converted to your local time at jupiterbroadcastingcom slash calendar. We do it live at 1
1: p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 2100 UTC.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Of course, that might change very soon, so we keep an eye out on the calendar.
0: Yeah, yeah. and uh, you can also just stream the audio at jblive.fm. And you can grab the RSS feed over at Jupiter Broadcasting. Just look for episode 299 of the show. We have the show notes, so which are links to everything we talked about, direct download files, and the RSS feed as well. So you can subscribe to that. Or you can go subscribe to the Jupiter Broadcasting channel on YouTube. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week.